Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Ben Armstrong is a co-founder of Archangel, an early stage venture fund and investment syndicate. He and his partners work with great technology founders to build game-changing companies together. They are industry agnostic and have backed over a dozen companies, including Bardi, Fresh Equities, Perla, Sendal and ShipEasy. Ben seems to have the perfect background for venture with degrees in both computer science and law and deep experience working with other talented people to change industries, including SaaS, e-commerce, healthcare and fintech. He's been a product manager, strategist, people leader, investor, board director, and spent six years at Telstra Ventures. While Ben has enjoyed lots of success, launching new businesses, bringing new products to market, building $100 million plus business units, he has the humility to admit that he's also learnt a lot from what didn't work and dealing with the consequences of failed initiatives, including his own startup. Ben, fantastic to see you. Lovely to see you too. I've been doing a little bit of research on your background and you you studied law and computer science at university, which seems like the perfect combination of disciplines for a venture investor. Did you know when you're at university that this is where you're going to end up? (laughs) Definitely not, but a funny story. I remember going to my first job interview at one of the law firms and I was telling the partner there about what I was passionate about. And he basically told me, like, why are you doing law? Because it doesn't make any sense. In some ways, I, I, I wish I had a sort of followed that advice, but it's not when you're young, you don't sort of feel that other people should tell you what to do. And, you know, I thought I knew better. And it was all about, you know, getting a foundation and getting the value out of spending all this time studying. But today you can learn a lot more as a computer programmer than, than many of the people who make in the law. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. And so what drove you to pick the computer science part of your studies? So I was always really interested in computer science. So I used to muck around, I think, from about the age of 10 uh, with with programming and sort of copying programs out of books because that's how it used to used to work. You'd buy a book or a magazine and you'd you know diligently copy it in and hope that you'd copied it in ad- adequately because otherwise it wouldn't work. That was sort of the passion. And then I, I sort of felt I had to do the legal thing because my parents uh, were in that area and I sort of thought, well, you've got to do something with the marks, which is probably wrong in hindsight. And I try to get my children firmly planted on the path of, you know, what they're interested in rather than what they get the marks for. And it sort of feels sometimes in life that, you know, you're a bit like water, you sort of end up finding the path of least resistance. Is that what happened to you in terms of finding your way initially from law into venture? Uh, Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I would have never guessed that I'd be investing now for like 
10 years, I would never ever guess that that's where I would end up. You know, I, I don't think I'm like a normal financial services type person who knows that, you know, they want to do things with money. Like that never sort of occurred to me. One thing led to the other. So I'm not sure it's in LinkedIn, but yeah, there was a failed startup amongst all that as well. So I, I realized I wanted to get out of the law and gave it a go. And and so can you tell us the story of the startup? What did it do? And sure, what was sure, great? Sure. And... We, were, we were ahead of our time. <laughs> many, many founders say that, I think. But me and a couple of friends, we got together and we, we thought we had this great idea at the time. It was just as sort of e-tailing was a concept we formed this company with the aim to bring transactional services to the point of sale. Now, what does that mean? It means we had this idea of bringing sort of marketplaces for delivery, for financing, uh, you know, much like Afterpay and some of these other like delivery and logistics players, all those services for a retailer who was selling things online based on the products and services that the customers was, were choosing. So, you know, the customer would have the choice and the uh, retailer would be able to offer them, like, all these options. Like, good idea, but, like, the thing I learned from that is it's all about execution. And uh, unfortunately, we found out the hard way that there weren't many people selling things online at that point in time. And <laughs> so that's why I say we're ahead of our time. And so where did that go next? So then, yeah, then I sort of licked my wounds a little bit and went back into a legal job, so not at a law firm because I'd, I'd done that and knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do. And so I went in-house working in a technology company, which was a really good experience. It, t- it turned out it was a venture-backed company at the time and took them through that whole process of an acquisition and learnt a lot about what it really was like to be more operational because as, as a in professional services, quite often you just got to do what clients want you to do. But when you're in business, when you're you know managing products or managing marketing or, or trying to sell a product, you've, you've got to actually learn those skills yourself and manage your time and work out you know where you can add some value. You ended up at Telstra Ventures. What was that experience like? Yeah, that was really, really interesting. So it, was, um, it wasn't clear that Telstra Ventures was going to become as big as it has. And I think now they've got nearly a dozen unicorns and invested half a billion dollars. I followed a, a very entrepreneurial lady from one part of Telstra where we were doing a whole lot of like e-health and cloud services and things like that. And she had this idea that she was going to create a unit that did some venture investing and some like business creation as well and so you know helped at the very early stages put that concept together and then sort of fell into the team because it's like well you've done the work so you've become part of the team and through that process like really learned what I liked about venture what I didn't like about venture like a lot of firms do like later stage investing and we're a bit like that you know doing large checks mainly overseas, in fact. That was good. And you learned a lot about the mechanics of a venture fund and what it takes to find successful investments. Of course, if you invest later, you get to see the results of your picking a lot quicker than if if you're investing earlier, in which you might have to wait like five to 10 years before you know whether, whether it's any good. I sort of fell into it, to be honest. And, you know, I was in the right place at the right time. I've never been afraid of taking risks and trying new things, which seems to have worked out in the long term. But like, I can't say it was a plan at the beginning to follow any, any of the courses that I did. And so now you're running a syndicate, which is, you know, really dedicated at the early stage. Can you talk a bit about the genesis of it and and your vision for it? Yeah. So 
one of the gaps I could see, and I've always been fairly active in watching the US markets and it's just so deep and you see more opportunities, there's more entrepreneurs, there's bigger problems that can be solved because they're bigger markets. Back in 2011, when I started InVenture, like there really wasn't much in Australia. And even until recently, there still hasn't been much at that very early stage. I mean, there's scale, there's people like us, there's, you know, there's a bunch of other people doing the early stage thing. But it's very different to running like a big fund that has like cradle to grave investing ambitions for a whole variety of reasons. Like you don't, you don't have all the resources that they necessarily have. You don't have, you know, the deep pockets of, of capital. And it's a lot scrappier at the early stage, right? So you've, you've got to sort of fundamentally understand what you're doing because you're impacting people at such a formative stage of their business. And I, I see people that don't know what they're doing and unfortunately they run founders in circles and confuse them and destroy their confidence. And that's, that's a shame to me. So, you know, the idea of Archangel really was to inject more capital into this very early stage, which is sort of the risky stage, you know, using the expertise and network that we've built up over time. And, you know, so far it's, it's very promising. We're forming great relationships with founders. Some are having great success and that's sort of why I'm, why I'm, in, I'm in it to sort of see these people progress and get to experience their success vicariously uh, and also benefit financially, of course. I really like that idea that you've got the scars to know more than just the sort of technical or the theory you've lived it yourself. How important do you think that is for an investor to be a good investor to have some of that lived experience? I think it is like really important. I mean, I remember talking to an old boss. He, at the beginning of my venture career, he was sort of saying, you, you need to learn the skills of venture investing. It's not something you can be taught. And I remember reacting quite negatively to it at the time because it's like, what do you mean? Like, I, you can teach anything. Like, are you going to put the effort in with me or not? You know, it's, it seemed like something that was, someone was just basically telling me to go away and do stuff. But there, there was definitely a kernel of truth to it. And I think you can read so much. You can, like, listen to experts, but you don't really understand it until you've lived it, whether as an investor or as a founder. Like, there's... I see these founders come sometimes who are really technically good and uh, really analytical and they'll they'll do this wonderful piece of research about the market and everything else. And it's like, that's great. You know, you're, you're telling me you've got all these wonderful skills and I can get a lot of confidence from that. But I actually get more confidence from the founder who's tried some things out, has maybe had a bit of failure, has learned from that has now actually worked out and can show me how that things are working out in their industry because it's like, wow, you know, you've, you haven't just theoretically conceptualised what you're doing here. You've brought it to reality and the proof's in the pudding. Like, there it is. Like, I can't argue with you as an investor. It's like, you're right. You know, this, this is what you've shown me. So the other part of what you said that I really am interested to explore is that some investors actually give founders poor advice it's so hard when you're a founder to know, you know, if this is the first time you're doing this, whether the advice you're getting is fit for purpose or not. What advice would you have for founders in terms of signals that you're dealing with a potential investor that might not be the right fit for you? 
as a founder, like it's, it's a lonely business in many respects. And some people are fortunate enough to have co-founders around them that are very supportive and sort of fill the gaps around what they know. And I think that's very valuable. But if, if you don't have that, I think you need to build a little bit of an ecosystem of advisors and mentors around you just to help you test some of the things that other people are saying. You know, I'm part of Startmate and that's like a, a big process where there's lots of mentors around it. And I know on the other side, you can get like whiplash where you're having like all these dozens of people telling you things. If you have some people you trust uh, or even just seek people out that you can talk to and you're, you're finding that, you know, this person's advice isn't being triangulated by other people, it's probably not right, right? So that's a good way. So, you know, don't just take someone's word for it. Like just, just go and ask for a second opinion at least. And, and you might find they were inexperienced perhaps and or had a vested interest in a particular outcome. And, and we see that a lot with people who, you know, want to be like advisors to startups or who, you know, want to introduce people to capital or people who have all these wonderful skills and they want equity for doing things. And it's like, that's great and it might be the right answer for this particular situation, but you know, there are sort of consequences to that and you do want to align yourself with the, the right kind of support network as well. My guess is you're the sort of fantasy investor that lots of founders want to have on their cap table because, you know, you've, you know the tech, you've got, you know, the capacity to understand the legal frameworks, you've been a founder yourself, you've, you know, got the scars. If you could sort of put a billboard out to say these are the sort of founders who should contact me, so it's not everyone, what are the sort of things you're looking for? Okay, I'm not sure it works that way. I think every, every, everyone finds you who you, including the people you don't necessarily want and the people you really want to meet, n- never make the effort. So that's sort of the challenge as an investor. So yeah, I encourage people just to like feel free to approach people if they you know want to get some advice. And usually, usually starting out asking for advice is a good way of getting investment. So I'll give you sort of three examples. Alice from Avira. Phoebe from Bardi and Sam and Kale from Bear. Uh, so, you know, they're three companies, different sectors, healthcare, death tech, with the other end of the spectrum, uh, and a bit of uh, recycling in there as well. And each of those founders, from the first discussion, I was clear that they had something, right? So I might not have understood the market, so... In the case of Bear, you know, I didn't really understand the death market. I'd never thought to look in it. A lot of venture investors don't look in that kind of space. It doesn't seem an obvious thing. But they showed me that the market itself was one where there were all these existing players in a lot of non-tech players and a lot of people who weren't bringing like, new digital marketing approaches. And you know, from that, I got a lot of confidence that this was the kind of market that are disrupting disruptive play could be successful in you switch to someone like Alice and you know she was so like full of energy and just perseverance and I put her up there on a pedestal myself in terms of uh, her capabilities and as a human being being able to get things done like it's, it's just just astounding and there I guess I got carried away by her belief in her solution to the problem and you know it was sort of personally experienced and you know she'd tried a whole lot of things, found this which which worked and, you know, she was going to build a business and a community around it. And to me, I could tell she wasn't going to let any kind of barrier stand in her way 
And, you know, that I think that's the kind of signal you want as an, an investor. And perhaps the, the third one, so, you know, Phoebe, so... You know, she had this vision for recycling. It's a very big vision and involves like a whole lot of capital expense and not the kind of normal business that I would choose to back with our limited resources. But, you know, once again, like really thoughtful, managed to collect a team around her that I could believe could actually solve this problem at scale and, you know, really impressed by her rate of learning to the point where, you know, I feel like I'm learning from her a lot of the time, which is, which is, which is actually a good feeling as an investor. Last, last thing I want to know is actually more than the founders who are talking to me about the problem domain. Like, that makes me feel like, yeah, I'm not getting what I need out of this relationship, which is deep industry expertise and you know, a, a real understanding of what it takes to be successful. You're a syndicate rather than a fund, but presumably one way or another, you know, most people are looking to you as an investing partner to, to, you know, make a call. How do you feel about that weight of responsibility of making judgments with other people's money? It is a big thing. So yeah, we started out as a syndicate and we still do syndicates, but now we're operating a little mini fund and we'll do a bigger one, hopefully, next year. Because, you know, part of what we realised is like running a syndicate is like really fulfilling and in a way you're making less decisions. I mean, you're still making the selection of the original investment decision, but then you're letting other people make the decision about whether they're going to invest their money or not. So that that is a more sort of democratic process about, about investing. But then we realised, like, from a, from a speed point of view, that we wanted to be able to write checks, particularly at the early stage, pretty quickly. And so you can't really do that where you've got to, you know, hurt a whole lot of people and check whether they're interested and that's sort of the attraction of the fund model and it is it is difficult so you know we we put our money in but it's also like my friends and colleagues and you know extended network when you are managing someone else's money it does change the dynamic i mean you're very conscious in some cases of you know where that money could have gone if it wasn't to you like one one of our investors has said you know that it's his child's university fund and it's like okay well I better, better make sure that we can we can return that and it it is hard so i think you need you need some kind of investing framework and i've seen like a, there's a lot of frameworks out there and they're just frameworks and you know they hopefully help people on the way to finding sensible investments but also it, it's a bit of a, a sort of mental crutch for the decision that you sort of know that you're going to make anyway, right? So you can sort of backsolve to the formulation that you have in your mind to justify any investment that you really want to make <laughs> if, if we're all honest with ourselves, right? That's fair enough. Like you wouldn't have invested in certain areas because you didn't know that they were around uh, and sometimes you fall in love with an aspect and you realise that's something I really want, like I, I really believe in the sector or the problem or, or the people who are solving it and that sort of trumps everything else in the, in the calculation of what's going to make a, a good investment. And you have a couple of other investing partners. How important is that to have someone else to sort of bounce your ideas off and for someone to tell you being, you know, you've fallen in love and it's overruling it, it your head? It is important. I will often fall in love with something and then someone will ask me the question, you know, whatever it is, and I'll be like, yeah, I see that and, and yeah, I was thinking that too, but, like, thank you and probably that's a reason why not to do it. So I'll, I'll give you an example without telling you too much. Recently I've, I found a founder in a space that's to do with cannabis and it's like 
I like the founder. I think the team is really good. You know, it's it's extensible beyond cannabis as well, but I think most of their customers in the short term will be people who are doing cannabis, you know, running cannabis farms and things like that. And, you know, it's some of that's perfectly legal. Well, it's, it's, it's all legal to some, some extent here in, in the US, whether it's, you know, for medicinal purposes or sort of recreational use, which is starting to open up. But... I realised, you know, we, we probably shouldn't do that at this time because we probably don't have the support of our investors to, to do something like that. And, you know, some of them might have philosophical objections in, in that area. So that's an example of a sort of extraneous factor that someone reminded me of and I had to agree. It seems like there's this dance between entrepreneurs and investors in terms of finding each other. You know, it always feels like the very best founders, there's lots of competition for them, but there are sometimes founders that we overlook. What's the best source of deal flow for for you guys? I love getting asked this question and and you've asked it the right way, but I I remember I've been asked it by a bunch of people who are clearly trying to just sort of copy our process. And it's like, you know, this looks like magic pot of wonderful deal flow out there. There there isn't really a magical pot. You never know where the deal that you really want to invest in will come from. And that's why like we all have websites and, you know, try to be publicly available and involve ourselves in, you know, different activities where you're going to get exposed to a whole bunch of, of different founders but the one that's always like really strong is where you're introduced by another founder like so it's maybe someone you're backed or just someone that you have great respect for when they say look I think this person is worth having a conversation with like you get raised right up to the top versus someone who's just sort of cold approached and that's tough for people who don't have that network or don't necessarily know someone who knows you but yeah that that's why I think those intros are usually like a bit more powerful that's not to say you know I've been introduced by a lot of people to companies that I just will never invest in anyway right Uh, and and the converse is true as well where people have pitched us out of nowhere and it's like that's that's a great company what we we want to back you so yeah don't be afraid of approaching people and giving it a go but yeah if there's a warm process that someone can tip you off about what that person is interested in and you know, there's been some level of filtering going on in the, from the introducer then you know that does raise you up. Yeah I've really loved on your LinkedIn profile that you've got a couple of references that your investee founders have given to you and it's really authentic as a way of sort of saying oh that's I can see in my mind, how they would work with me as a founder, but, you know, someone else has described it. Was that intentional or it just sort of happened organically? Yeah, I mean, I, like, I'm, I'm always reluctant to seek praise, but it's, like, really good when people sort of volunteer some comments and, like, sometimes you don't realise how you're being helpful and the things that you thought were really helpful <laughs> probably weren't regarded as, as, as that helpful. And it's like, that's okay, um, a learning lesson there. But it's really important to like listen to founders in terms of what their experience is and you know we've you know we we talk to investors we talk to you know a range of people to try to work out what's happening with founders but founders should absolutely do the same thing with with potential investors because you do hear some bad stories out there you hear a lot of indifferent stories but you know there's some great people and they'd be happy to invest in many different types of companies. I mean, I can imagine that, as I said, there's lots of people that would love for you to be on their cap table. So that means there's lots and lots of people potentially contacting you and, you know, you've got to do the due diligence and raise your own capital. 
How do you fit it all in? What are your sort of tips for productivity? Oh, this is this is the hard question. I'm really I'm really bad at this. So I mean, this this sort of verges on the personal, but um, I'll, I'll go there because I think it might be might be useful for some of the listeners. So I'm sort of the I guess the primary carer for our three kids because my wife has an important job and uh, she has to go to work and works odd hours and because she's on call and all that kind of thing. So it is really tough, right? It is really tough to find balance and know what balance is reasonable. You know, there's the family stuff, there's the investing side, which is quite pleasurable. Then there's the admin side, which isn't that pleasurable at all. And we've all got some of that in our lives. It is really, really hard. And, you know, I I tend to, unfortunately, just let the boundaries of work, particularly with COVID, sort of just it just all blends. So, you know, I, I'm not putting my hand up as being the poster child of how to find work-life balance, for example. I think, I think I've got a lot to learn in that regard, unfortunately. Do you think it helps with founder empathy, though? I think it does. Like, you know, I I try to be available, you know, when people have, like, issues that, in companies that we've invested in because I know that they can just come up out of the blue. And I, I think that is sort of the startup process like at the early stages it's all a bit of a mess it's all a bit like disordered and confusing and you never know when something exciting or something depressing is going to come at you and and you've sort of just got to be responsive to it and I think it's it's the same on the investing side I mean you you can't control when the good companies are going to raise or be interested and so you know we we tend to get like massive peaks of activity where it's just like all hands to the wheel and then other times when you're just sort of scratching your head going, what's on, what's going on? Are we missing a whole lot of things that are happening in the market? Because it just seems like really, really quiet. So, so I guess you need to be flexible to be able to deal with all that sort of variation. So you've mentioned your kids a couple of times and also reflecting on your experience being the sort of kid who just found computers interesting. Have your kids inherited that love? And... If not, have you sort of tried to stimulate it? Really good question. Yes, I have tried. I have failed. Like I, I thought they would all be really interested in coding. You know, I've, I've got one child in particular who's like very good mathematically. I thought, you know, this, and they're all interested in computers and iPads and everything else. So we've got all the array of technology. I think it's sort of a bit disappointing that none of them have that sort of creative edge. Like I enjoyed computer science because you're sort of creating something out of nothing and you can you know, make something that actually interacts and allows people to interact with it, whether it's a game or whether it's like solving a problem or whatever. Like that, that was the fascination to me that you could change the world through code. They seem to spend most of their time as consumers of content and uh, social media and other, other forms without necessarily being using that creative part of their brain. So, yeah, if, if someone finds a magic solution to that. But, yeah, I tried early. I tried, like, co- online coding games. I tried – we did Code Club uh, with my youngest. Uh, she didn't really get into, into that either. So, uh, yeah, maybe things have changed since, since I was young. Partly my question is motivated because I'm a complete failure with my children. You know, I'm trying to live my life through them because I wish I had have invested more in developing some technical skills. But also it's because – I just see we're not producing enough people through our education system that sort of 
as you say, are not passive consumers of what's served up to them, but are actually part of the creation process. And, you know, we're seeing it at the moment. There's this catastrophic shortage of people who have those skills. I mean, I, I would love for someone of your brains to be able to suggest what we could be doing better. If I think back to university when I did computer science, like it was a, a, it was a little bit dry and a little bit boring. I mean, the, the fun part was getting on the high-powered computing machines that weren't like PCs. They were special computers and computer networks with a whole lot of processing power and being able to play around with those. Like that was exciting. I think we had like three women doing computer science out of a whole year. So that was a bit depressing. And I don't think people looked at it as a particularly good career option but today, like if, if you've ever tried to hire an engineering person or a computer science person, that's like really well paying. And I think if more kids knew that, perhaps they would gravitate towards those kind of roles. But also, I don't think our education system is really good at encouraging creativity and building, which is such a shame because then what happens? People go to university. Once again, it's the same sort of learning paradigm for the most part. And then what do you do? Like you start a business and you, but you don't know anything about business or creation and you don't have any experience. I mean, I'm generalizing here, but like, I think that is a problem in Australia. And I think we'd all be better off as a nation if we solved that because, you know, whether it's just from a wealth point of view and you look at all these characters in the U S who are, you know, billionaires or making a lot of money in startups, that's one reason to do it, but it's also a reason to do it, to be able to control your own destiny and interact and not just be a consumer of largely like foreign tech. Couldn't agree more. And interesting that you mentioned that statistics around women studying computer science, it's changed a bit, but I don't think it's a radical change from when, when you were studying. But I love the way that of the three you know, companies you've nominated, at least two of them have, you know, female founders. Is that sort of a conscious choice or that's just happened sort of organically that they're the founders that resonate with you? Yeah, we're, we're trying harder. Like, it's it's not easy. Like, you know, I'm, I'm just being direct there. But, like, if you look at a market and you look at, like, the number of players in a market, like, if there's more of one type of business out there or there's one type of founder out there that's in the majority, it's really having a hard job if you've got to select only from a smaller group. And I think that is a challenge. And I've seen a lot, some things in the US work pretty well, but it's still, like, bad out there right it's 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 not parody I think there's maybe even more women lawyers these days than male lawyers which is good I think the same thing has happened in medicine so you know programs can work at that level but for some reason like we're not seeing that translate into the entrepreneurial world I know a lot of people are doing a lot of good work to try to encourage that but there's there's just not enough of a critical mass and what I love is when people have success in their own right and then they sort of reinvest in the space. So like someone like Kate Morris I think is like really great because she's had success, you know, she spends time fostering the community and that's what we need. We need more founders in Australia who are helping other founders see what's possible and on the journey to actually get to the summit. Yeah, and I love that you've given us a couple of extra examples. You know, there's obviously Melanie Perkins at Canberra as well, but but I love that you can nominate Phoebe Gardner and Alice as inspirations to you. And I think that sort of being able to imagine a range of what a successful founder looks like is so important. 
you know, you seem like a sort of really curious person who's always learning. Are there resources that, you know, you would point to that you find are really helpful for you, books or podcasts or, or other things that you love? I finally found a podcast that I, I really enjoyed when I was um, learning the VC trade early on, and that was called the 20-Minute VC because it had like a, a sort of format a little bit like this where it was like a whole lot of interviews with people who had got to a certain point in their career about, you know, life, about, you know, how they got there, about, you know, what, what they'd learnt, all that kind of thing. I think that can be like really impactful because it was... I think they do like one a week and so you get a whole lot of different people, a whole lot of different perspectives. I'm seeing a lot of parallels here actually as I'm saying this, but anyway. Um, so, And it was just like a great way of building up a mass of, of knowledge uh, in a pretty short amount of time. So I'd often like listen as I uh, went to the tram or, you know, were commuting or whatever it was. And it's also like a window into other people's lives. And so I think that kind of thing can be really useful as opposed to like necessarily like reading a whole lot of books and trying to digest rather stodgy and perhaps slightly out of date content. You know, better to get it in nice, like bite-sized, slightly personalised manner, I think. Either out of those resources or, or in your own experience, what's the sort of best piece of advice you reckon you can give to an entrepreneur that's thinking about getting some external funding? Ooh, big one. Um, so <laughs> one piece. <laughs> Doesn't have to be one piece of advice. Can be. Yeah, lots. I think. I mean, this this might not be obvious, but it's pretty obvious to me. The people that you'll be talking to know less about the subject matter than you do right so so you put them up on a on a pedestal so to speak about like their status and their knowledge about the industry but like they know maybe the investing side whereas you know the actual subject matter of of your business and you probably know your customers a lot better uh, you know the market a lot better you know your product a lot better so like in any meeting like don't don't be afraid to think if, if you need this as a crutch the person across the other side of that table probably knows a lot less than I do. So, like, I should be a little bit more confident. And, yeah, the more I can show this person my confidence and my knowledge, probably the more I'll be believed, right, rather than just um, sort of thinking that you're, like, applying to some, like, magical process that's going to rain money down if you, you know, hit the right criteria. Yeah, I mean, that resonates so strongly. And I, and I always think to myself, you'll never get marked down for saying the whole word instead of using yeah. an acronym. Because to you, if you're a subject matter expert, it seems like everyone knows what that means. But investors seldom do. So that's such great advice. Last question, what are you really optimistic and excited about? So I'm actually pretty excited about the Australian early stage scene. Like, I, I think it's healthier than it's ever been. Like, it's got more investors, more money, more founders, more ideas, more ambition. You know, all, all those things, I think, are sort of making it, you know, you know, we're not as big as Silicon Valley. Like, we're not that whole machine that sort of drives financial outcomes and has that level of competition. But I think we're starting to get to the point that we need to get to to make Australian entrepreneurs well regarded on the international scene and sort of actually punching where we can. Historically, there's been some good successes, but we could do a whole lot better. And I think we're now building that pipeline. And you know, hopefully over the next 10 years, we'll see some really great entrepreneurs create even bigger companies than those that have been created so far and you know, making a meaningful impact on their problem spaces.
Well, I reckon that the investment that you and your partners are making, not only with the Archangel investment dollars, but just the support and advice and, and sharing of wisdom is so pivotal to that. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing and, and for sharing some of your insights with us. Well, thank you so much. No, I mean, we try to be helpful and you know, even in even when we don't invest, like I think you, you, this is the kind of industry you've got to pay it forward and we all reap the benefits of that in terms of more interesting companies, more founders with the better chance of success and, and that's a good in itself. Yeah, it's fabulous. Thank you so much. Thanks, Catherine. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs, Scale Founded, a five-day short course, combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.